0: Welcome to Scary Bedtime Stories. I'm your host, Jose, and I will be your guide, your Morpheus into the world of dreams. The goal of this podcast is to help you fall asleep by relaxing you, taking your restless mind off your problems, and help you get the rest that you deserve while I read to you a horror classic. I promise it won't be too scary. Just a reminder before I put you to sleep that I do another podcast called Technically A Conversation with my lovely co-hosts Isela and Elena. We love to cover weird and creepy topics and make you laugh in the process. A link will be in the show notes or go to technicallyaconversation.com. We're going to tune out the outside world. That's the gentle rain and music you hear in the background. Hopefully that'll be enough to drown out your neighbor's barking dog or the kids popping firecrackers at three in the morning in front of your house. Put this episode in repeat or make a playlist of several episodes while we wait for the Sandman to rub some sleep in your eyes. Every time you find your mind drifting away, focus on my voice and on the story. With all that out of the way, let's get started. Make yourself comfortable in your bed. Flip that pillow around to the cool side and relax your breathing. Smear some Vicks under your nose and focus on how soft and cool your sheets are. Today, I'll be reading you The Red Room by H.G. Wells. I can assure you, said I, that it will take a very tangible ghost to frighten me and I stood up before the fire with my glass in my hand. It is your own choosing, said the man with the withered arm and glanced at me askance. Eight and twenty years, said I, I have lived and never a ghost have I seen as yet. The old woman sat staring hard into the fire, her pale eyes wide open. Aye, she broke in, and eight and twenty years you have lived and never seen the likes of this house, I reckon. There's a many things to see when one still, but eight and twenty. She swayed her head slowly from side to side. A many things to see and sorrow for. I have suspected the old people were trying to enhance the spiritual terrors of their house by their droning insistence. I put down my empty glass on the table and looked about the room and caught a glimpse of myself, abbreviated and brought into an impossible sturdiness in the queer old mirror at the end of the room. Well, I said, if I see anything tonight, I shall be so much the wiser, for I come to the business with an open mind. It's your own choosing, said the man with the withered arm once more. I heard the sound of a stick and a shambling step on the flags in the passage outside, and the door creaked on its hinges as a second old man entered, more bent, more wrinkled, more aged, even than the first. He supported himself by a single crutch. His eyes were covered by a shade, and his lower lip, half averted, hung pale and pink with his decaying yellow teeth. He made straight for an armchair on the opposite side of the table, sat down clumsily and began to cough. The man with the withered arm gave this newcomer a short glance of positive dislike. The old woman took no notice of his arrival, but remained with her eyes fixed steadily on the fire. I said it's your own choosing, said the man with the withered arm, when the coughing ceased for a while it's my own choosing i answered the man with the shade became aware of my presence for the first time and threw his head back for a moment and sideways to see me i caught a momentary glimpse of his eyes small and bright and inflamed then he began to cough and splutter again why don't you drink said the man with the withered arm Pushing the beer towards him, the man with the shade poured out a glassful with a shaky hand that splashed half as much again on the deal table. A monstrous shadow of him crouched upon the wall and mocked his action as he poured and drank. I must confess, I had scarce expected these grotesque custodians. There is to my mind something inhuman in senility something crouching and atavistic. The human qualities seemed to drop from old people insensibly day by day. The three of them made me feel uncomfortable with their gaunt silences, their bent carriages, their evident unfriendliness to me and to one other. If, said I, you will show me to this haunted room of yours, I will make myself comfortable there. The old man with the cough jerked his head back so suddenly that it startled me, and shot another glance of his red eyes at me from under the shade. But no one answered me. I waited a minute, glancing from one to the other. If, I said a little louder, if you show me to this haunted room of yours, I will relieve you from the task of entertaining me. There's a candle on the slab outside the door said the man with the withered arm, looking at my feet as he addressed me, but if you go to the red room tonight, this night of all nights, said the old woman, you go alone. Very well, I answered, and which way do I go? You go along the passage for a bit, said he, until you come to a door, and through that is a spiral staircase, and halfway up there is a landing, and another door covered with bays. Go through that, and down the long corridor to the end, and the red room is on your left, up the steps. Have I got that right, I said, and repeated his directions. He corrected me in one particular. And are you really going, said the man with the shade, looking at me again for the third time, with that queer, unnatural tilting of his face. This night of all nights, said the old woman. It is what I came for, I said, and moved towards the door. As I did so, the old man with the shade rose and staggered around the table so as to be closer to the others and to the fire. At the door, I turned and looked at them and saw they were all close together, dark against the firelight, staring at me over their shoulders with an intent expression on their ancient faces. Good night, I said, setting the door open. It's your own choosing, said the man with the withered arm. I left the door wide open until the candle was well alight, and then I shut them in and walked down the chilly, echoing passage. I must confess that the oddness of these three old pensioners, in whose charge her ladyship had left the castle, and the deep-toned old-fashioned furniture of the housekeeper's room in which they foregathered affected me in spite of my efforts to keep myself at a matter-of-fact phase. They seemed to belong to another age, an older age, an age when things spiritual were different from this of ours, less certain, an age when omens and witches were credible, the ghost beyond denying. Their very existence was spectral, the cut of their clothing, fashions born in dead brains. The ornaments and conveniences of the room about them were ghostly the thoughts of vanished men, which still haunted rather than participated in the world of today. But with an effort, I sent such thoughts to the right about. The long, drafty, subterranean passage was chilly and dusty, and my candle flared and made the shadows cower and quiver. The echoes rang up and down the spiral staircase, and the shadow came sweeping up after me, and one fled before me into the darkness overhead. I came to the landing and stopped there for a moment, listening to a rustling that I fancied I heard. Then, satisfied of the absolute silence, I pushed open the baize covered door and stood in the corridor. The effect was scarcely what I expected, for the moonlight coming in by the great window on the grand staircase picked out everything in vivid black shadows or silvery illuminations. Everything was in its place. The house might have been deserted on the yesterday instead of 18 months ago. There were candles in the sockets of the sconces and whatever dust had gathered on the carpets or upon the polished flooring was distributed so evenly as to be invisible in the moonlight. I was about to advance and stopped abruptly. A bronze group stood upon the landing, hidden from me by the corner of the wall, but its shadow fell with marvelous distinctness upon the white paneling and gave me the impression of someone crouching to waylay me. I stood rigid for half a minute, perhaps. Then, with my hand in the pocket that held my revolver, I advanced only to discover a ganymede and eagle glistening in the moonlight. That incident for a time restored my nerve, and a porcelain china man on the bill table, whose head rocked silently as I passed them, scarcely startled me. The door to the red room, and the steps up to it, were in a shadowy corner. I moved my candle from side to side, in order to see clearly the nature of the recess in which I stood before opening the door. Here it was, thought I, that my predecessor was found, and the memory of that story gave me a sudden twinge of apprehension. I glanced over my shoulder at the Ganymede in the moonlight and opened the door of the Red Room rather hastily, with my face half turned to the pallid silence of the landing. I entered, closed the door behind me at once, turned the key I found in the lock within, and stood with the candle held aloft, surveying the scene of my vigil, the great Red Room of Lorraine Castle in which the young Duke had died. Or, rather, in which he began his dying, for he had opened the door and fallen headlong down the steps I had just ascended. That had been the end of his vigil, of his gallant attempt to conquer the ghostly traditions of the place, and never, I thought, had apoplexy better served the ends of superstition, and there were other and older stories that clung to the room, back to the half-credible beginning of it all the tale of a timid wife and the tragic end that came to her husband's jest of frightening her. And looking around that large somber room with its shadowy window bays, its recesses and alcoves, one could well understand the legend that had sprouted in its black corners, its germinating darkness. My candle was a little tongue of light in its vastness that failed to pierce the opposite end of the room and left an ocean of mystery and suggestion beyond its island of light. I resolved to make a systematic examination of the place at once and dispelled the fanciful suggestions of its obscurity before they obtained a the hold upon me. After satisfying myself of the fastening of the door, I began to walk about the room, peering round each article of furniture, tucking up the valances of the bed and opening its curtains wide. I pulled up the blinds and examined the fastenings of the several windows before closing the shutters, leant forward and looked up the blackness of the wide chimney, and tapped the dark oak paneling for any secret opening. There were two big mirrors in the room, each with a pair of sconces bearing candles, and on the mantel shelf, too, were more candles and china candlesticks. All these I lit one after the other. The fire was laid, an unexpected consideration from the old housekeeper, and I lit it, to keep down any disposition to shiver, and when it was burning well, I stood around with the back to it and regarded the room again. I had pulled up a chintz-covered armchair and a table to form a kind of barricade before me, and on this way my revolver, ready to hand. My precise examination had done me good, but I still found the remoter darkness of the place and its perfect stillness, too stimulating for the imagination. The echoing of the stir and crackling of the fire was no sort of comfort to me. The shadow in the alcove, at the end in particular, had that undefinable quality of a presence that odd suggestion of a lurking, living thing that comes so easily in silence and solitude. At last, to reassure myself, I walked with a candle into it and satisfied myself that there was nothing tangible there. I stood that candle upon the floor of the alcove and left it in that position. By this time, I was in a state of considerable nervous tension, although to my reason, There was no adequate cause for the condition. My mind, however, was perfectly clear. I postulated quite unreservedly that nothing supernatural could happen. And to pass the time, I began to string some rhymes together in Goldsby fashion of the original legend of the place. A few I spoke aloud, but the echoes were not pleasant. For the same reason, I also abandoned After a time, a conversation with myself upon the impossibility of ghosts and haunting. My mind reverted to the three old and distorted people downstairs, and I tried to keep it upon that topic. The somber reds and blacks of the room troubled me. Even with seven candles, the place was merely dim. The one in the alcove flared in a draught and the fire flickering kept the shadows and penumbra perpetually shifting and stirring. Casting about for a remedy, I recalled the candles I had seen in the passage, and, with a slight effort, walked out into the moonlight, carrying a candle and leaving the door open, and presently returned with as many as ten. These I put in various knickknacks of china, with which the room was sparsely adorned lit and placed where the shadows had lain deepest, some on the floor, some in the window recesses, until at last my seventeen candles were so arranged that not an inch of the room but had the direct light of at least one of them. It occurred to me that when the ghost came, I could warn him not to trip over them. The room was now quite brightly illuminated. There was something very cheery and reassuring, in these little streaming flames and snuffing them gave me an occupation and afforded a helpful sense of the passage of time even with that however the brooding expectation of the vigil weighed heavily upon me it was after midnight that the candle on the alcove suddenly went out and the black shadow sprang back to its place there i did not see the candle go out I simply turned and saw that the darkness was there, as one might start and see the unexpected presence of a stranger. By Jove, said I aloud, the draft's a strong one, and, taking the matches from the table, I walked across the room in a leisurely manner to relight the corner again. My first match would not strike, and as I succeeded with the second, Something seemed to blink on the wall before me. I turned my head involuntarily and saw the two candles by the little table by the fireplace were extinguished. I rose at once to my feet. Odd, I said. Did I do that myself in a flash of absent-mindedness? I walked back, relit one, and as I did so, I saw the candle in the right sconce of one of the mirrors wink and go right out. And almost immediately, its companion followed it. There was no mistake about it. The flame vanished as if the wicks had been suddenly nipped between a finger and a thumb, leaving the wick neither glowing nor smoking, but black. While I stood gaping, the candle at the foot of the bed went out, and the shadow seemed to take another step towards me. This won't do, said I and first one, and then another candle on the mantel-shelf followed. What's up, I cried, with a queer high note getting in my voice somehow. At that, the candle on the wardrobe went out, and the one I had relit in the alcove followed. Steady on, I said, these candles are wanted, speaking with a half-hysterical facetiousness, and scratching away at a match the while for the mantel candlesticks. My hands trembled so much that twice I missed the rough paper of the matchbox. As the mantle emerged from darkness again, two candles on the remoter end of the window were eclipsed. But with the same match, I also relit the larger mirror candles and those on the floor near the doorway, so that for the moment I seemed to gain on the extinctions. But then, in a volley, there vanished four lights at once in different corners of the room, and I struck another match in quivering haste and stood hesitating whither to take it. As I stood undecided, an invisible hand seemed to sweep out the two candles on the table. With a cry of terror, I dashed at the alcove, then into the corner, and then into the window, relighting three as two more vanished by the fireplace. Then, perceiving a better way, I dropped the matches on the iron-bound deed box in the corner, and caught up the bedroom candlestick. With this I avoided the delay of striking matches, but for all that the steady process of extinction went on, and the shadows I feared and fought against returned, and crept in upon me. First the step gained on this side of me, and then on that. It was like a ragged storm cloud sweeping out the stairs. Now and then one returned for a minute and was lost again. I was now almost frantic with the horror of the coming darkness and my self-possession deserted me. I leaped panting and disheveled from candle to candle in a vain struggle against the remorseless advance. I bruised myself on the thigh against the table I sent a chair headlong. I stumbled and fell and whisked the cloth from the table in my fall. The candle rolled away from me, and I snatched another as I rose. Abruptly, this was blown out, as I swung it off the table by the wind of a sudden movement, and immediately the two remaining candles followed. But there was light still in the room, a red light that staved off the shadows from me. The fire! Of course, I could still thrust my candle between the bars and relight it. I turned to where the flames were still dancing between the glowing coals, and splashing red reflections upon the furniture, made two steps towards the grate, and incontently, the flames dwindled and vanished. The glow vanished. The reflections rushed together and vanished. And as I thrust the candles between the bars, Darkness closed upon me like the shutting of an eye, wrapped about me in a stifling embrace, sealed my vision, and crushed the last vestiges of reason for my brain. The candle fell from my hand, I flung out my arms in a vain effort to thrust that ponderous blackness away from me, and, lifting up my voices, screamed with all my might once, twice, thrice. Then I think I must have staggered to my feet. I know I thought suddenly of the moonlit corridor and, with my head bowed and my arms over my face, made a run for the door. But I had forgotten the exact position of the door and struck myself heavily against the corner of the bed. I staggered back, turned, and was either struck or struck myself against some other bulky furniture. I have a vague memory of battering myself thus, to and fro in the darkness, of a cramped struggle, and of my own wild crying as I darted to and fro, of a heavy blow at last upon my forehead, a horrible sensation of falling that lasted an age, of my last frantic effort to keep my footing, and then, I remember no more. I opened my eyes in daylight, my head was roughly bandaged, and the man with the withered arm was watching my face. I looked about me, trying to remember what had happened, and for a space I could not recollect. I rolled my eyes into the corner and saw the old woman, no longer abstracted, pouring out some drops of medicine from a little blue phial into a glass. Where am I? I asked. I seem to remember you and yet I cannot remember who you are. They told me then, and I heard of the haunted red room as one who hears a tale. We found you at dawn, said he, and there was blood on your forehead and lips. It was very slowly I recovered my memory of my experience. You believe now, said the old man, that the room is haunted. He spoke no longer as one who greets an intruder, but is one who grieves for a broken friend. Yes, said I, the room is haunted, and you have seen it, and we who have lived here all of our lives have never set eyes upon it, because we have never dared. Tell us, is it truly the old Earl who... No, said I, it is not. I told you so, said the old lady, with the glass in her hand. It is his poor young countess who was frightened. It is not, I said. There is neither ghost of Earl nor ghost of countess in that room. There is no ghost there at all, but worse, far worse. Well, they said, the worst of all the things that haunt poor mortal men, said I. And that is, in all its nakedness, fear that will not have light nor sound that will not bear with reason, that deafens and darkens and overwhelms. It followed me through the corridor. It fought against me in the room. I stopped abruptly. There was an interval of silence. My hand went up to my bandages. Then the man with the shade sighed and spoke. That is it, said he. I knew that was it. A power of darkness to put such a curse upon a woman. It lurks there always. You can feel it even in the daytime, even of a bright summer's day, in the hangings, in the curtains, keeping behind you, however you face about. In the dusk, it creeps along the corridor and follows you, so that you dare not turn. There is fear in that room of her's black fear, and there will be, so long as this house of sin endures. This concludes The Red Room by H.G. Wells. Stay tuned for next week's episode where we'll start a new story. If you enjoyed the podcast and it helped you sleep, don't forget to subscribe, tell a friend, and leave me a review. You can also follow me on the socials at Scary Bedtime and listen to my other podcast, Technically a Conversation, at technicallyaconversation.com All the links will be in the show notes. Have a good night.